You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, a local body of believers in Quarryville, PA. To learn more about Oak Hill, visit oakhillfellowship.com. Now grab a Bible and a notebook and prepare to be spiritually enriched by God's Word. Uh, One is how high the buildings are, right? Like, we just don't have anything like that in Quarryville. And uh, and I look around, and Boston's not even a very tall city, but uh, it's a lot taller than Quarryville. And, uh, and, and so I'm always struck by these, these towers, these monuments of human achievement. And then I'm always struck by how many people there are. And, uh, and then I begin to think about how many people are walking these streets who are, you know, like, where are they all going? What are they all doing? You're in, you're in the, the subway and you're like, like, where are all these people going? And some of them are going to their corporate offices. Some of them are going to their favorite ball field and, and, and they're, they're, worshiping monuments of human achievement, but uh, if statistics would tell us anything, very, very few of them are, are pursuing the kingdom of the Lord. Very, very few of them are even aware that there is a God who created them, who, who exists beyond time and space, and, and maybe one out of every ten that you see on the street uh, would, would be building up the kingdom that will last forever. Now, that's not just true in cities, right? We, we can often think, oh, cities, yeah, yeah, cities, of course. But it's true in rural areas, too. Maybe three of every ten that you see on the street are, are actually living for the kingdom of Jesus, statistically speaking. Uh, maybe, maybe three out of every ten are, are, are going to be uh, are gathered around that throne in the, in, in, the, in the way that we just sang, in the way that we just talked about and prayed. And, and you've got to wonder, like, how did we get this way? How did we, we get to this place where, where God is not even recognized among so many people, among all of the nations of the earth? I think the typical way that, that uh, conservatives would answer that question is, well, we, we, we let our values go back in the 1950s, right? And, and, uh, and, and they would just kind of point you know, back with this kind of historical myopia and say, well, we had, we had this utopia back in the 50s and we let it go. Uh, but, I, but I think that the story goes much, much further back than that. Uh, in, in fact, I think that it goes all the way back to the very beginning of all things. If we're seeing anything in the book of Genesis, we are seeing that the, the origin story of humanity is just that. Uh, us trying to build up our own kingdoms, trying to do our own thing, trying to be God without God. And we're studying the book of Genesis so that we would course correct on that, so that we would begin to know who we are by knowing where we came from and the God who created us. See, the origin of everything that we see in the world has its roots all the way back in the beginning. And today, we're going to talk about the origin of nations. The, the origin of nations. And, and that's not just governmental entities. Uh, that is the origin of people groups who are, are trying to do their own things, trying to build their own kingdoms to heaven. We are a people who live among the nations of the earth. We are, we are citizens of earthly kingdoms who are, who are by and large, dead set against the Lord. 
And that has been true from the very beginning for God's people, that they lived among the nations of the earth, that the nations sought their own glory, they, they wanted to be like God without God, and they wouldn't settle for reflecting and representing Him, they had to replace Him. They wanted to overtake Him. And as we see today, uh, the Lord scattered them across the face of the earth so that they would not even think that they could possibly succeed in that endeavor. And yet, in scattering them, the the Lord was was preserving them. And He was showing that He had a plan to preserve a people for Himself from among the nations. And through that lineage, all the peoples of the earth, all the nations of the earth, would be blessed. And so, even though we are studying ancient, ancient history today, I believe that you're going to begin to see that, that this is very much still our present reality, that, that the nations are seeking to rise up against the Lord, but, but here's what we need to do in light of that. We need to spread the name of the Lord across the whole earth, even though the nations rise against Him. We need to spread the name of the Lord across the whole earth, even though the nations rise up against Him. Believer, that is your job. That is my job. Is to spread the name of the Lord across the whole earth, though the nations rise against Him. That is why we are on this planet. And so your Bibles are open to Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Just to remind you of the context, uh, Noah stepped off the ark. He was worshiping God, and God blessed him and recommissioned him with, with this, this very familiar refrain from all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, where he says, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And and so Noah is supposed to, along with his children, fulfill that intent that God put in humanity from the beginning to be his image bearers, to be his image likeness. But his sons, at least especially one of his sons, uh, would not have it. You remember... uh, Noah sinned against the Lord. He, he got drunk and was in his tent. And his son Ham uh, pointed out the shame of his nakedness to his brothers, Japheth and Shem. And, and so Japheth and Shem came in and they, they covered over the sin of their father. They, they, they showed him mercy and grace. And, and so Noah cursed Ham and he blessed Shem and Japheth. And that provides the context then for this genealogy that we are going to read today. As we get to the genealogy of, of Noah we, and his sons, we see that the earth is repopulated. They are fruitful and they do multiply, but they repopulate the earth with the image of God that was in Adam that was marred through sin. And so let's begin reading in chapter 10, verse 1. We're going to read all of chapter 10 right now, and then we'll come back and we'll get into chapter 11. Bear with me. This is a genealogy, right? And and this is probably one of the wildest ones with all the names and everything else. So what we're looking for, what are we looking for when we look at genealogies? We're looking for repetition and then breaks in the repetition, okay? So play scavenger hunt, do what you need to do, try to find where it repeats, where there's rhythm, where there's structure, and then where that breaks, okay? 
Chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabta. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush, father Nimrod, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. A little breaking repetition there. He was a, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech. Akkad and Kalnah in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Ananim, Leobim, Naphtuhim, Pathrushim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Archites, and the Sinites, and the Arvadites, and the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clan of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lashah. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages, by their lands and their nations." To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arkbashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arkbashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Amadad, Sheleph, Hasmaraveth. Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimiel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. Therefore, the, the territory in which they lived extended from Isha in the direction of Sefer to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these the nations spread on the earth. After the flood. Whew. I was uh, with my sister-in-law the other day. who's was having a baby. And I said, she, she was thinking about, you know, give us some baby name ideas. And I just said, Genesis chapter 10, come on. There's some in there that are definitely not used very often. But remember our big idea. It's not about the names of the people. It's about the name of the Lord. Spread the name of the Lord across the whole earth, even though the nations rise against him. And, and this, this genealogy is about, about the nations. And, and here are three reasons, we're going to give you three reasons why we must spread the name of the Lord. The first that we see in this section is this. The Lord desires the earth to be filled with his image, even though the nations rise against him. Chapter 9 would, would show us that, that mankind is still bearing the image of God even though they are in their sin. 
Remember, it was required of man that if, if a man murdered another man, by another man his life would be taken because, because in the image of God, mankind was formed. And so God is protecting, He's caring about His image that is in man. And that's why He would tell humanity from the very beginning to fill the earth and subdue it. He wants the earth to be filled with the image-bearing of God. That's how the earth will receive its blessing. As mankind rightfully represents and reflects God in subduing the earth. And so I told you in this this genealogy uh, to look for repetition and breaks in that repetition. And the repetition that we get is that many nations are populated. This is a genealogy that is about nations more than it is about individual people. And so the repetition that we see is that, that the earth is, multi- is filled and subdued as the peoples are multiplied. There are 70 nations in total. Uh, it represents the whole world as Israel knew it. Now, that doesn't mean that every single nation was uh, represented or named in this genealogy, but rather it it is, uh, 70 is a very important number because it's 7, a number of completion, times 10, another number of completion, which is ultimate completion. So these nations represent the entire world as Israel knew it. Japheth's lineage gets only a little bit of space. I'm not sure if you noticed that. Uh, But that's because his descendants don't really interact with Israel's descendants very much at all. And so Moses is writing this to Israel, and he's showing them where are all these other nations that you know about descended from. And so that's where he's focused in his attention. And so then we get into the descendants of, of Ham. And the descendants of Ham, as we would expect from Genesis 9, are the arch enemies of Israel. I mean, you read, you read verse 6 and you get the who's who of the greatest enemies of Israel. Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. These are the bad of the bad. And their descendants exalt themselves before the Lord. Uh, verse 9, remember where I pointed out that first break in the repetition, uh, we, we, we read about Nimrod. And what, is we, what do we read about him? That he's mighty before the Lord, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And we're like, yay, that sounds really good, doesn't it? Uh, like he's, he's, he, he must be honoring the Lord with his hunting or something like that. Until we then read that he founded the city of Babel. And, and Babel is what we're going to study in just a few minutes in chapter 11. And it is, the, it is the foundation of the nation of Babylon, the, the, the kingdom of Babylon. And so we're like, eh, maybe Nimrod's not such a great th- guy. And then we come to understand that the, the word before, uh, that he's a mighty hunter before the Lord, uh, really it just means to face. It, it means to be opposite the face of, right? And so what is Nimrod doing? He's facing off before the Lord. Saying, I'm a mighty hunter. Who are you, God? And he's rising up, and, and the people of Babel are doing the exact same thing that we're going to learn about in just a moment. Then we have the Philistines in verse 13. If you know your Bible history, you know that the Philistines become a real problem in the book of Judges and then in the book of First and Second Samuel. 
Then in verse 15 and following, we get all the various clans of the Canaanites. And these are the immediate threat to Israel. Remember, Israel is receiving this from Moses, very likely as they're sitting on the banks of the Jordan River, waiting to cross into the promised land. And so who are they going to face off against first? The Canaanites. And all of these clans, where do they come from? They come from the line of Ham. So what are we going to do with all of these people? We're going to trust the Lord as, he, as we can see that he knows how to deal with them. Uh, even their own heritage, their own line of Shem is divided. We read about Shem that he is the father of Eber. That's, that's made into a big deal. And that's because uh, Eber is where we get the word Hebrews, right? So, so that, is, that is the first time that we begin to see that this, these are the Hebrews. And they would have, they would have latched on to that. They would have been like, okay, that's our guy, right? But then we get down to Shem's sons, Joch, uh, descendants, Joktam and Peleg. And that was where the earth was divided. There's a little bit of foreshadowing here about what we're going to read in chapter 11 about the Tower of Babel, right? And then there's a whole line that comes from Joktim that is not part of their genealogy. It's not part of the, the history of Israel. And yet, and yet, all of this was part of God's plan. Even the nations that are not part of the nation of Israel all the nations that make up the whole earth, they are part of God's plan. The Lord desired a populated earth, even though the nations would rise up against Him. He wanted them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. He had a plan to redeem even the nations who were not a part of Israel. Why? Because they are still image bearers of God. Because humanity is still on his heart. See, so many in our society, as the earth reaches a population density that it has never seen in the history of the world, so many in our society would say that humanity, the existence of humanity, is the reason for all the world's problems. They would say that, that because we have so many geopolitical nations, that's the reason for all of the world's problems. And the solution for many in the world would be to limit the population, for one, assuming that nothing good comes from humanity. And so stop having so many kids. Stop, you know, populating the earth. Nothing good can come from it. You know, limit, limit yourself as a human. And at the same time, they would want to build monuments to their own human achievement by, by building alliances between nations that they believe are the key to secure fu the future of mankind. Or if, they're, if you're not socialist and you're capitalist, you build alliances between companies that you believe are the future of securing mankind. And... and I'm the first to admit that mankind has not done a very good job of stewarding the world that God has given us. We've, we've, not, we've done a terrible job at it, right? We've been more concerned about building our own kingdoms and, and coming out on top. 
but population control and one world order is clearly not God's solution to the problem. And we can see that in the book of Revelation. We can see it right here in Genesis 10 and 11. His solution is to redeem humanity person by person from among a variety of nations so that we would be united under one king and one kingdom. But we're going to get to that in a moment. On on a personal level, one of the ways that I see this this societal paradigm playing out is is, is the tendency among families to, to say, you know what, why would I bring a child into this world? It's so evil. Why would I add to that population? Why would I add to all the problems? And again, I don't believe that that is the Lord's solution. He's still saying, be fruitful and multiply. And as you're fruitful and multiply, bring that child up into the world and teach them to be an image bearer of God through Jesus Christ. And so we we need more Christian families who are having more kids. Because that is one of the ways that God is going to spread his image throughout the whole world. And that's the point. That's the point of having children. Not, not so that we could be fulfilled and satisfied, but, but so that we could teach our children the reason why they were created. Kids, you need to know the reason why you were created was to represent and reflect God, to build His kingdom, not your own. God wants to redeem mankind according to His own created purpose. The problem is, uh, often mankind doesn't want rede- God's redeeming plan. We want to fulfill our own plan. We want to set our own course. And so look in chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It's a little easier to read. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city with its tower in the top of the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is the only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So here we are going to to focus in on one particular generation from the previous genealogy that we read about, uh, the generation of Nimrod, who, remember, founded the city of Babel, and it's also the generation where where the Canaanites were dispersed. We talked about that, right? And it's the generation uh, of Eber, who was the father of Peleg and Joktim, in whose day the nations were divided. And so we're zooming in now on how the nations that we just read about came to be dispersed and divided and have all of these different languages. Now, we don't get all of our questions like, what did this look like? And, and how did it happen? And, you know, 
I remember watching like a storybook about this, a kid's, kid's show, and they, they have some imagination, and maybe that's fine, but, but God doesn't want to answer all those questions. What he wants us to see is this, that the Lord desires the best for humanity, i.e., his glory, even though the nations rise against him. The Lord desires the best for humanity. And our best is his glory, even though we would seek to rise against his glory. So this is a familiar story, but it can be easy to miss some of the key features that, that lead us to the main point because we're all, we're all concerned about how did it happen and, and, and what did this look like. But one of the first things that we see is the repetition of this problem and the solution to the problem. The problem was that they had one language. One language. And with that one language, what did they do with it? How did they communicate with one another? They used it to plot against the Lord. David read Psalm 2 earlier this morning. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? So, so what would we do if we all had one language, if we had no language barriers? Would we build up the kingdom of God or would we build up our own kingdom? Case in point, Genesis chapter 11, we would build up our own kingdom. We would use our one language to plot against the Lord. Verse 2 tells us a little bit more about their character. Uh, that, that they, uh, the ESV says that they migrated from the east and they found a, pla- a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Uh, now, the ESV and the King James both translate that from the east. Um, the NIV and the NASB, which is a very literal translation, uh, says that they migrated further east. And, and I think that that is probably the correct translation because what do we see uh, right after Adam and Eve are banished from the garden? There, there's an, a cherubim placed at the edge of the garden on the east side. And then where do we see uh, Cain go uh, when, he, when he is banished from the Lord's presence and he's, he's going to be a fugitive and a wanderer? He goes to the east And so the further east you go, you're running away from the presence of the Lord. And I believe that's what's being communicated here. To further reflect what was going on in Cain's time, uh, verse 3 tells us that they, they had come up with a way to build cities and build towers that was different than the way that it had been done in the past. In the past, it had been stone and mortar. Now it's bitumen and pitch. And, and, and uh, bricks as well. And this would have been a much faster way to build cities, a much faster way to build towers. And so there's this productivity and innovation that we also saw in Genesis chapter 4, where, where Cain's line was known for working in bronze and iron and coming up with innovations for, for keeping livestock and all of those sorts of things. Uh, and productivity and innovation, we said even back then, is not in itself the problem. What the, the problem comes when we use it to build up our own kingdoms. When we use it to rise up against the Lord instead of building the Lord's kingdom. And the problem was that the more powerful they got, the more arrogant they became. Look at verse 4 again. Then they said, Come, let us make our, build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of of the whole earth. 
So this isn't just about a city and a tower and bricks and mortar. This is about making a name for themselves. The nations are dead set against God's mandate to fill the earth. It is their greatest fear that the will of God would come true. God's plan was a threat to their own view of success and and achievement and security. That's a problem. That's a problem. When the Lord's way seems unthinkable to us because it stands in the way of our definition of success, that's a problem. It means we have a really skewed view of success. It means that we've lost our sense of who we are and why we were created in the first place. If you ever get to the point you're like, yeah, I mean, I'd love to be a disciple maker and I, I, I'd love to, to, you know, give more and whatever. But it would really take away from this thing that I'm trying to do, this thing that I'm focused on, this, this thing that I'm building over here. Repent. Because <laughs> you're going the wrong direction. You're, you're seeking the wrong version of success. And this is why in verse 6, the Lord says, Behold, they are one people. And they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go and let us there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now this is a bit of a head scratcher for me. Because I thought that the Lord liked unity. I thought that the Lord was all about peace. And He wanted to bring peace on earth between, between humanity. Why would God do something that would create so much conflict. Not only that, but doesn't this make the Lord sound just a little bit insecure? Like, oh no, oh no. If we read this wrong, we're going to think he's just like really sweating it out. Like, oh boy, look at their tower. Now they can really get to me. If we read what he does next, we know that that is not the case, right? He can take care of this in an instant. What we're seeing here is is not insecurity. It's protection and even mercy. See, the worst thing for mankind is not that they would be scattered. The worst thing for mankind is not that they would be a little bit confused and diversified. The worst thing for mankind is not that they would feel insecure or unsafe. The worst thing is not even the ensuing conflict that comes between nations as the result of sin. The worst thing possible for mankind is for them to be so full of earthly success that they are deceived into thinking that they have arrived in heaven when they are really rising up against their creator and against their creative purpose. That's the worst thing possible. And that's terrifying as we sit in the middle of a very successful nation ourselves. The worst thing possible was that we could have some deception, some 
figment of our imagination that we would call success. And I believe that earthly achievement is possibly one of the greatest threats to people coming to Christ. I opened up with the illustration of of monuments in the city, right? So let's go after the rural town now. Just imagine a guy in, in rural Pennsylvania. He's got two acres, a four-wheeler, a dog named Rex, an above-ground swimming pool. He's generally a pretty comfortable guy. He enjoys having his buddies over every Saturday night for beers. He's surrounded himself with people who think just like him, who, who help him get ahead in life, who speak his language, so to speak. He's living the good life. He's got his own heaven on earth. All the while, he is unaware that he is an enemy of God because his heart is dead set on building his own kingdom rather than the Lord's. And because he has not turned to Jesus Christ for salvation. And he's oblivious to the fact that his backyard barbecue is really a tower to heaven that will never reach. What he needs the most in his life is a wake-up call to the Lord and to his eternal plan. He doesn't even know he needs Jesus. If you, if you told him, you're a sinner in need of a Savior, he'd be like, what? If you told him that he needs to start following Jesus and, and to, to lay down his life and pick up his cross, he'd be like, why do I need to do that? I got my own little heaven on earth right here. Or he would say, sure, Jesus. I, sure, Jesus sounds good. Put him over there next to my kid's football trophy. God will either rip his sense of security out from under him in some way. That, that would be the merciful thing to do. Or he will, build his, he will let him build his tower until it is burned up in the final judgment. And sometimes the thing we need the protection from the most is ourselves and our own ability to succeed at things that have no eternal significance. Success is becoming who God created us to be and doing what God created us to do to reflect his glory across the face of the whole earth. Our best is found in seeking his glory, and he will not share his glory with another. And We were created to be his image likeness, and when we throw off that purpose, we become self-destructive. However, very few, very few people will believe that. In fact, it is a supernatural act of God if you believe those words that I just said. That the thing that we need the most is to be saved from ourselves and our own view of success. And if you do believe that, praise God. And then it means that you, God has called you out and he has set you apart and he has opened your eyes to something very different. And he set you on a course for a very different purpose. And the third reason why we must spread the name of the Lord is because the Lord desires a people for himself from among the very nations who rise against him. 
The Lord desires a people for himself from among the very nations who rise against him. Look at chapter 11, verse 10. We're back into a genealogy again. These are the generations of Shem. Wait, I already thought we had a genealogy of Shem. This one's going to be a little different. Look for the differences. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arkbashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arkbashad 500 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Arkbashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arkbashad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber, had, Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had, Serug had lived three, 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and he had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and he had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now that should sound to you a little bit different than the genealogy that was in chapter 10. And what's the difference, right? Well, first of all, in chapter 10, we're focused on nations, not a direct line of descendants, right? But, but secondly, uh, we, we follow the line of Shem in both chapter 10 and in chapter 11, but when we get to Peleg and Joktim, when the nations were divided, that, that time, probably right around the time of Babel, we, we, we take a left turn at Joktim in chapter 10. We take a right turn at Peleg. And, and why is that? Because Moses is bringing us down through the lineage to a guy named Abram. See, this is Israel's line. And if you notice, this genealogy sounds a lot more like the genealogy from chapter 5, just like the, the genealogy from chapter 10 sounded like the one from chapter 4, the genealogy from 11 sounds like the one from chapter 5, which was Seth's line, which was the line from which Noah came, which was the line of the people of God. And so Moses is saying, this is your heritage. These are your people. We have, we have no interruptions right up until the time we get to Abram. And this is actually the turning point in the whole book. Uh, scholars would call Genesis chapters 1 through 11 a primordial history or primitive history, and then they would call the rest of the chapters uh, of the book of Genesis patriarchal history. The, the history of the whole world, and then the history of Israel's patriarchs or forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and then the 12 sons of Jacob, who were the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this is the turning point in the book, which is, by the way, why we're stopping here, taking a break for the summer, and then we're going to come back in the fall. But Abram is, is that singular point of light. 
in a constellation of stars that are turned away from the Lord. Abraham is that, that singular one out of a million who will actually be faithful to the Lord and follow his calling. Few are the people who will follow the Lord. Few. And yet, God gave Abram a promise. In Genesis chapter 22, it's stated clearly, I will surely bless you, and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashores, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you obeyed my voice. So all of these nations that we just read about in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 who were scattered, they are going to receive the blessing through this one singular person who will have the offspring of the nation of Israel and from that offspring of the nation of Israel will come the Savior Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And through that singular offspring shall all of the nations of the earth be blessed. And so that offspring would be born, and he would live the perfect life. He would fulfill all of God's requirements. He would be holy like God is holy. And then he would die for the sins of the nations. He would die for everyone who would turn to faith in him. And if none of us here are among the nation of Israel, but all of us here can be a part of God's people because of what Jesus has done. Because we get to enter into their blessing through him. And he rose again so that we could have new life and new purpose in him, so that we could be restored after the image of our creator, so that we could live for the reason why we were created instead of going all the other ways of the nations of the earth. And after Jesus rose, he gave his disciples a commission He said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth over every single nation that is on the face of the earth has been given to Jesus Christ so that his people would go therefore and make disciples of what? Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all all that Christ has commanded us. And guess what, church? He is with us always, even to the end of the age. Even to the end when we will gather around His throne with all those those nations. And so listen, our mission field is the nations that are the result of God's activity in Genesis chapter 11. Do you see how this whole thing fits together? We see this in Acts chapter 1 especially. So the, the, the early church, 120 of them, the disciples of Jesus Christ are, are gathered together in an upper room and they're praying and they're, they're waiting for, for the Spirit of God to come upon them and, and then all of a sudden it happens. And what is the result? Peter starts preaching and the other starts translating into the various languages of the nations that are present so that every person there that day heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in their own language. And after that, as a result of that, 
as a result of them turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus, the church was born. The church of Jesus Christ is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. And it's important to to recognize even in that, that that God didn't wipe out the diversity of languages in that moment. He didn't all of a sudden make everyone start speaking Hebrew. He left the diversity of language and culture so that as as the church spread into other cultures, it, it would become a counterculture in every culture. Unity amidst diversity is part of God's design for the church. It's not the diversity of languages that is overturned in the book of Acts. It's the confusion that is overturned. And the Holy Spirit of God breaks down barriers of of nationalistic disunity and and cultural and language barriers because Jesus has now made a way for all nations to be restored in the image of God. The the picture of the future in Revelation that I I prayed through at the beginning is, is, is just... That, that kind of picture of, of one from every tribe and language and people and nation gathered around the throne of our Lord. And it is only in Jesus Christ that we can come together in true unity. Because it is only in Him that God can restore us to the intended purpose for which we were created. To reflect His glory, not our own. God doesn't want just any unity around any old thing. He wants unity around His thing because His thing is our best. His thing is His glory. That's why we make disciples. We don't do it to build our own kingdom and be like, look at me and how many people I led to the Lord. We we don't do it so that we can feel good about our church. Be like, look at how many people come to our church. We don't do it so that we can show off our, our ingenuity or, or, or just have activity for the Lord, busy work for the Lord. We don't do it so that we can have a bunch of friends at church who, who look just like us and talk like us. Come with me to church. I need more friends there who look more like me. No. We do it so that the Lord can receive glory. The glory that He is due as he restores a diverse and beautiful people in his image. But I'll remind you, uh, even in the church, it is easy to forget this. See, Acts 1, things start out strong. But Jesus told them to, that when they would receive the Spirit, they would be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And so it, by Acts 6 and 7... There's a story about the early church where, where the church has gotten comfortable in, and ingrown. They've kind of become a little bit petty. And they start arguing about petty things related to racial tensions and, and, and who gets how much food and all this kind of stuff. And, and I mean, like it's important things in the way that they're caring for one another, but, but honestly, the reasons why the divisions come are quite petty. And ultimately what we see is that they, they failed to leave Jerusalem and live on mission. When you stop being on mission, petty things become a lot more important. And so God allowed something hard, something that reflects Babel, something undesirable, 
he allows Stephen to die as the first martyr. And that ensues in the church a, a sort of confusion and even suffering that then lights a fire under the church and then they begin to scatter to the nations. And the gospel is spread and new churches are planted in ways that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Wasn't happening before. And listen, if we are unwilling to go and fill the earth with the image of God, if we are unwilling to spread the name of the Lord across the nations, God will put uncomfortable things in our lives to make us willing. Ultimately, those who have been saved by the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, have been called out from among the nations and saved to a different purpose. This is what it means to be his follower. This is our identity. 1 Peter chapter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's our identity, church. To be called out from among the darkness of the nations, to be a holy nation before the Lord, so that we would proclaim his excellencies. Is that what your life is about? If I were to ask the people in your life who are closest to you, whose name are they spreading? Whose name are they living for? If I were to ask your kids or your spouse or your best friend or your neighbors or your coworkers, where's their tower going? Whose name are they spreading? Would they answer the Lord's? Or would they answer their own? They're just kind of doing their own thing. Living the good life. Are you about reflecting the Lord's image wherever he may lead you? Or are you about building your own towers to heaven? Whether that be the, the towers of personal fame or success or comfort or security. Or maybe it's about the fame and success of other earthly kingdoms, whether, whether you're all about trying to see this nation restored as a Christian nation, or, or whether it's about corporations that you're trying to build up and feel successful within. The Lord has a nation, and it's the church. Ultimately, he will restore the nation of Israel to worship their Messiah. But right now, the called out people, the chosen ones are the church of Jesus Christ. Earthly kingdoms will rise and fall, but the kingdom of our God is an everlasting kingdom, and we are here to spread his name among the nations. Let's pray that we would. Just take a moment reflect on what you just heard and search your heart and say is there anywhere that I have reflected these words let us make a name for ourselves 
Is there anywhere that, that I have reflected these words? I can't possibly do what the Lord wants me to do because it would threaten this in my life. This version of success, this, this definition of security. Name it before the Lord and repent of it. Turn from it. Ask the Lord what it looks like to, for you personally, specifically, to spread his name among the nations. That will start with the people right around you, the people who are in your life. Ask him, what, is, what does it look like, God, for me to live for you your kingdom instead of yourself, instead of myself. And then worship him because he's worth it. He's worth turning from those other things and living for him because he created you. Because he gives you life and breath and in him you have your being. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.